to the extent that is the American Bar Association Business Law Section's podcast series. Our podcasts provide general information. They aren't a substitute for legal advice from a licensed professional. We offer both standalone and serial podcasts on a variety of topics and welcome your feedback and suggestions at ababusinesslaw.americanbar.org. We hope you enjoy your selection. Hello, and thank you for tuning in to this fourth and final installment of this podcast series, Unusual Litigations, Disputes That Look Different. I'm Stuart Rebeck. I'm the chair of the Business and Corporate Litigation Committee and also your host for this series. This series looks at disputes that don't follow the most common path that business litigations follow, where a plaintiff goes to a state or federal court, files a complaint, asks for damages or an injunction or declaratory judgment or something similar. So far, we've done podcasts about receiverships, tribal courts, and sports-related disputes. If this is the first episode you're listening to in this series and you're interested in getting an idea what the other episodes are about, they are on the section's website. Today's podcast looks at bankruptcy litigation, and we have with us two top-flight bankruptcy lawyers, uh, litigators, who frequent bankruptcy courts and can tell us all about the strange dynamics and different procedures in bankruptcy court. Kathy McElroy is a partner at the Carlton Fields firm in their Tampa office. She litigates all sorts of debtor-creditor issues in a whole bunch of different industries, including a fair amount of work in real estate-related disputes. She also periodically acts as a court-appointed receiver or counsel for a receiver, as well as a mediator. Kathy co-chairs the Bankruptcy Litigation Subcommittee in the Business and Corporate Litigation Committee. Joseph Sorkin is a partner at Aiken Gump, resident in their New York office. Joseph regularly litigates complex commercial disputes for investment fund clients and financial institutions, and that includes a heavy experience in financial restructuring litigation, which takes him regularly into bankruptcy court. Both Joseph and Kathy spend a fair amount of time litigating in bankruptcy court, handling all kinds of adversary proceedings and contested matters. And what exactly those are is one of the subjects we'll be covering in the course of this podcast, which leads to the first question. What is a bankruptcy court and why do we have them? After all, we don't have specialized securities fraud courts or antitrust courts. Why bankruptcy courts? Stuart, I think the reason that there's a specialized bankruptcy court is because of the nature of the financial distress under which the, the debtor is operating. And I think the bankruptcy court is intended to be somewhat of a holistic place where one judge is overseeing all the aspects of various disputes that may impact the business's ability to survive. Yeah, Kathleen, I completely agree with you. Um, and I guess in thinking about um, what makes a bankruptcy court different than a specialized, you know, fraud court or antitrust court, you could make an argument that there would be a benefit um, to have courts, specialized courts for uniformity, process, transparency, all which are important in the bankruptcy context with a distressed um, entity or individual. But um, the, the thing that jumps to mind for me, really, and what makes it different from a litigation perspective, as well as um, addressing the, the needs of an entity in distress is speed, um, that bankruptcy courts exist and um, uh, exist primarily uh, and are designed to get debtors in and out of bankruptcy as quickly as possible to address the distress 
um, and allow for an opportunity to address that quickly in a uniform way with, as you mentioned, Kathy, and uh, a judge who has the ability to see holistically what's going on with that debtor. Um, you don't want a company to languish, a distressed entity to languish in that state, um, especially if you're working towards a reorganization or an individual uh, looking for a new start. Okay, uh, why should a business that isn't a debtor care whether its affairs get adjudicated in bankruptcy court rather than some other court? And if they really don't want to be in bankruptcy court and instead want their disputes handled elsewhere, is there anything they can do? What kind of options do they have? Um, uh, Kathy, I'm happy to, to start on this one. Um, and I'm, I'm sure there are a lot of different thoughts about what are um, the benefits and, and why uh, an entity or a, a business might be concerned about being forced to exist in a bankruptcy court. Um, uh, but the reality is bankruptcy courts are great places to try cases, um, uh, to have a judge who understands the entire um, uh, playing field uh, for an entity who, um, you know, can address issues quickly. Uh, there will be a bench trial um, in all likelihood. Uh, you, you, you're not going to get a jury trial if you care about that. You know, there are things you can do um, and if you have a right to a jury trial. But there's actually a, a, a great opportunity in bankruptcy courts to, again, I'll go back to the speed, to have disputes um, uh, resolved quickly and, and fairly, and to the extent there's an opportunity for a resolution and mediation, that speed forces parties to um, work through differences where those differences can be worked through um, and to get to a financial resolution that, that in a bad situation does uh, the best for, for both parties. Um, so, you know, I would encourage businesses to be open to the opportunity um, to be in a bankruptcy court and a specialized court that can address these specific financial needs in a quick and efficient manner. Um, I, I guess when I think about why a business might not want to be subject to uh, the bankruptcy court is in, in a voluntary situation where you have a debtor that's chosen the venue and chosen the bankruptcy court, there, there might be a, an assumption that the bankruptcy court is biased towards the debtor and trying to get that debtor you know, reorganized or has a familiarity with the debtor, with the employees that it might not have with another business. So I can understand those concerns. Um, um, and, and sometimes they may, may turn out to, to be true or to at least feel that way to a business. Um, in those circumstances, there are certainly motions um, that uh, one could seek to file to have a case transferred to lift the automatic stay, depending upon what the specific circumstances are. But um, again, I guess I would go back to the beginning and, and encourage a business to be open to the possibility that the speed and specialty of a bankruptcy court may actually benefit the, the, the entity um, towards a resolution, towards achieving a resolution. And while I enjoy uh, litigating in a bankruptcy court, um, it's not always an ideal form. It's often a good and an efficient form, as you said, Joseph. Um, there are some things that um, sometimes parties aren't comfortable litigating in bankruptcy court because of maybe related entities over whom the bankruptcy court may not have jurisdiction. And, and there are um, remedies for that kind of circumstances, including trying to have the matter 
uh, the reference withdrawn, the reference that sent the matter to the bankruptcy court to begin with, to move it back to the district court or even sometimes to a state court. And, and that may be needed. And you mentioned jury trials. And although um, jury trials are rare in bankruptcy, bankruptcy courts can hold jury trials if all the parties do consent. They are very rare. And to the extent you want a jury, um, bankruptcy is not probably your best forum. Okay, uh, just picking up on something that Joseph mentioned, he used the words automatic stay, and uh, I'm hoping that the two of you might be able to comment about the effect that the automatic stay has on pretty much everything. Sure, the, the automatic stay um, is a provision of the bankruptcy code that stops litigation against the debtor or against property of the estate. Um, and, and that's significant because it doesn't stop in all cases litigation that has been brought by the debtor against a party or a counterclaim that has been brought by a debtor against a party. But it, it basically is a stop sign that says pending litigation outside of the bankruptcy court must stop and actions to recover assets of the debtor and property of the estate must stop until further order from the bankruptcy court. Yeah, and, and and that stay provides a breathing spell for the debtor um, and provides an opportunity for the debtor to, um, and for the court to understand, again, the playing field um, and address the immediate distress and see if there are opportunities for resolution um, in the short term of certain matters and a longer term restructuring um, in the context of a of an entity that is is seeking to use the bankruptcy process to restructure either um, its operations or its debt, um, and so there is a significant benefit. Um, you know, mentioning that kind of goes back to maybe one of Kathy's points: why a business might not be interested in being involved because um, its its uh, remedies or remedies it might otherwise have will be curtailed as a result of the automatic stay. Okay, if you're a creditor of a company in Chapter 11, you're probably going to be bombarded with all sorts of notices and documents that have captions on them, and they say they come from a bankruptcy court. And if your clients are like mine, uh, no business likes being served with documents that have a caption on them and say they're from a court. So what do you tell a client that keeps getting these notices? What should they do? What should they be looking for? This is this is where I was going to make the the plug. Hire one of us. Um, <laughs> uh, this is this is a situation where again we're kind of going back to where we started with the specialized nature of bankruptcy courts. Um, it is important to get um, guidance and counsel and to find someone who can tell you what to look out for. Um, and protect your interests. There are a lot of notices that you get, um, and a lot of them might not relate in any 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 way, shape, or form to your interests, your individual interest as a as a business or as a creditor, um, or a, you know, uh, to the extent there is some other interest you have in the debtor, the debtor's estate. Um, but having someone who can counsel you um, is is really the best bet because you don't want to be in a position where you've missed. A notice and this, this notice process in bankruptcy, the kind of idea of process and notice is critical um, to the ability to, to uh, for a bankruptcy court to operate at the speed it operates. Um, but you know, one's rights can be lost in a way that you wouldn't lose otherwise um, as a result of, of notice. But 
Kathy, I, I, I might have cut you off. I, t- I turn it back to you on this one. No, it was a great commercial, and, and it did feed into what I typically tell clients, is that uh, bankruptcy moves quickly, notice is considered given um, if it is sent, and the fact that you may not have understood it or that you may not have acted upon it timely could um, impact your rights. And so I often tell them that it makes sense to have someone enter an appearance on their behalf that can actually look at the notices and and determine which ones are significant and to flag those for them. Because otherwise, you know, particularly with large companies, sometimes they rattle around in the mail systems of companies before they get to someone who can actually um, identify the the issue and decide where it goes and get it into the hands of someone who can actually figure out what should happen next. And sometimes that time that they lose is significant. So I often suggest, you know, have us make an appearance. Um, We'll, you know, keep an eye on what's going on and we understand the issues that are important to you and we'll raise them for you when they uh, um, arise. Can you go ahead? I was just going to say, I mean, sure, I was just going to say, even on that, if if you choose not to, if someone were to choose not to um, have someone enter a notice of appearance and kind of monitor the proceedings, um, even doing things just like looking for your name, your business's name um, on documents, understanding kind of the big picture um, kind of uh, deadlines in the, in the, in the course of a bankruptcy proceeding, sort of deadlines to file proofs of claim, critical. If that's happening, you know, you want to make sure you're looking. Um, objections to a claim that you've made, so if your name's on it. Um, motions to sell assets, you know, to the extent you have an interest in those assets. Um, notice of plans of reorganization or disclosure statements. That's kind of the, it, it's important if you're going to do it on your own to understand um, kind of the the life of a bankruptcy case and uh, the you know, big gating issues and the big hurdles at various times. Um, so, you know, again, I would go back to recommending having somebody um, who is experienced and knows the court, knows the bankruptcy proceedings to, to enter an appearance. But if you're not going to do that, um, at least educate yourself on kind of the big issues that, that'll uh, come up in the course of a bankruptcy proceeding. Okay. Say your client uh, has a UCC on some stuff that is at the debtor's facility and they want to get it back. What do they do? Can they sue? Does it have to be in bankruptcy court? What kind of relief can they ask for? How about if a client holds a mortgage on some of the debtor's property? What are the options that these people who are opposite a debtor have? Well, first off, as we talked about previously, the automatic stay typically stops suits. So once the debtor's filed, um, you're not in a position typically when that you can file suit without leave of court. So that's something you have to keep in mind. You can't just continue to plow ahead as you might have prior to the filing of the bankruptcy. Um, depending on the nature of the items held and whether there's equity in the, the, the asset, whether they're goods that you sold, there are certain things that can be done. If you sold goods to a party in the early days leading, leading up to the bankruptcy, you may be able to make a reclamation demand and get the goods back. And that may be effective in, in, in the right um, strategy to take. 
um, to the extent there's collateral, there's going to be an issue about whether or not uh, you're adequately protected going forward. And certainly those are issues that um, you need to assess early on and try to figure out where you are, whether you're secured, over-secured, under-secured, and what you should do based upon your particular standing. I, I um, completely agree with everything Kathy said. And um, I, I guess one of the things I love about litigating in, in bankruptcy court is while the automatic stay creates the general rule um, that you know litigations are, are ceased, um, the the general rule um, in bankruptcy court is is uh, I think subsumed by the 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 rule that there's always a motion to file. Um, that bankruptcy courts are there to um, do equity um, and to understand the uh, situation for creditors and the debtor holistically. Um, and it may be that you can file a motion to lift the stay or file a motion in connection with a proceeding or another uh, or a contested matter that um, is is arising as a result of a motion the debtor is um, seeking to have entered or some relief the debtor is seeking so that even if you can't accomplish um, through uh, you know what you might be able to accomplish outside of bankruptcy through a foreclosure on collateral or something of that nature, um, you might be able to get some limitations placed on what the debtor can do or um, protect uh, your interest in, in assets in a way that um, you might not otherwise be able to do. So um, again, while the, the general rule is there, it's, it's, it's not um, something that you should assume will preclude you from taking action to protect your interests. And many times by taking action in and of itself, um, you can accomplish maybe not exactly what you wanted, but um you know close to it okay um litigating in bankruptcy court is almost like litigating in a fishbowl because you have a lot of different groups and constituencies that are watching everything that goes on who are these people and how does their presence figure into how you decide what you're going to be doing well to, to some extent depending on the type of matter that you've got the the group of people watching from the outside of the fishbowl might be all of the creditors of the company or the individual. And, and that could be a fairly diverse group. Um, so that's one thing to keep in mind. Um, and what you do may cause others to, to act or, or refrain from acting. And certainly that's something that might bear into your strategy as well when you're, you're considering actions to take. But bankruptcy does have a lot of transparency and a lot of different constituencies all participating at the same time. Yeah, I completely agree. It, it, it does often feel like a fishbowl and something I would recommend for practitioners and for people not familiar with uh, bankruptcy as well, um, having discussions with those different constituents, constituencies leading up to contested hearings, trials, um, is, is very beneficial uh, to clients because you need to, as a litigator, understand what it is you're going to be facing when you, you go in. So while you'll often have a sense of what that is based on the filings and, and the various pleadings, objections, et cetera, um, it's, it's important to develop a relationship with the bankruptcy bar, the local bankruptcy bar, to be able to reach out to some of those constituencies, whether it be the U.S. trustee's office, 
um, who might be involved in certain matters or the official committee of unsecured creditors or if there's an equity committee that's formed um, or a group of lenders, um, secured lenders that's formed. So there are a whole host of uh, groups and contingent and, and, and um, constituencies that could be involved in any given case and understanding who they are and what their interests are in connection with a particular motion um, or a particular issue will be critical to um, protecting the interests of your clients. And it could be a situation where um, for one issue, you are aligned with a particular constituency and for another, you're not. Um, so kind of understanding understanding that, understanding the individual issues um, is, you know, creates an opportunity to really benefit your client um, in that fishbowl. So in addition to the fishbowl uh, aspect, the rules are actually somewhat different in bankruptcy court than in district court. And can you tell us a bit about how the rules are different and what effect the differences in the rules have? I suspect it has a lot to do with speed, but there's other things too. Yeah, this is where, um, Stuart, I go back to where I started. Speed, speed, speed. Um, it, it really is, um, in many ways, that is the driver in the difference in the rules. So um, understanding that you're going to have short notice, that you're going to have short time frames to respond to motions, that if you need to take discovery, um, that that's going to happen in a way that is is triggered off of the needs of the particular motion or issue or contested matter with a hearing. Um, it's not going to be driven off what's in the federal rules. So while the federal rules um, as incorporated uh, into the bankruptcy rules might say you have you know 30 days to respond to discovery requests if the hearing's in 10 days then you know that 30 days uh, is, is is really not particularly relevant so kind of understanding those demands understanding those time frames um, and the relationship between is is really important and um, you know, if it's your client that's being served with discovery or that has to respond, understanding that their interests could be um, impaired if you don't take action quickly um, and immediately and understanding how to operate and work with uh, other practitioners, other litigators under those circumstances um, is critical. Kathy, which rule differences and uh distinctions do you find most salient as between regular court rules and uh, bankruptcy court? Well, um, I, I think Joseph hit it on the head that speed is probably the largest single difference for litigation, particularly in adversary proceedings, which are much more like um, what the types of litigation that non-bankruptcy lawyers are accustomed to. Um, it they actually adopt the, the federal rules of civil procedure. And, and those cases move much more like regular litigation, but contested matters, which might be objections or motions or things like that, operate much like Joseph said on a very quick time frame. There are a lot of evidentiary proceedings in bankruptcy. And um, for those reasons, the, the rules um, that govern contested matters, which are more found in the federal rules of bankruptcy procedure, really do emphasize speed, efficiency, and, and really getting to the heart of the issue. 
Uh, I like that. Um, I, I like the fast pace of it and the ability to get to the bottom line quickly. And so that's the aspect of it that I find most enjoyable in bankruptcy court. Now, that being said, it often leads to very stressful times when you have very short time periods to respond to things. And it's not uncommon for people to make oral motions to shorten discovery periods. Um, and, you know, so you, you may be in court and someone will move to shorten discovery to five days or 10 days. And, and you know, given the speed required, you're going to have to go with it. And it's not always easy, but um, I find it interesting and I find it, um, you know, very efficient for the clients in some respects. Yeah, I, I agree 100%, Kathy. It's, that, that speed is something that I really like. Um, as a litigator in bankruptcy court, and as you know, you still have to understand and know the, the rules and know how to litigate um, as if this were a four or five year litigation. Um, but the speed allows you to be more efficient and to, in many instances, cut to the chase, um, which I think benefits clients um, uh, tremendously so that you're not, there isn't time to have, uh, uh, you know, a drawn out four month discovery dispute where there's briefing back and forth. Um, the, the, the critical information has to be produced and, or you have to uh, identify it immediately and address the issue with the court. So there isn't, there isn't time for delay and inefficiency. Um, and, and I really, uh, personally as well, enjoy, that aspect um, and and agree with Kathy that the distinction between you know a contested matter and an adversary proceeding um, in bankruptcy court is is very important and, and the rules will be sort of different in terms of the timing. What I also like about adversary proceedings um, in, in, in bankruptcy courts though as well is because you are dealing with parties, oftentimes judges, um, and uh, uh, other practitioners who are used to or more familiar with bankruptcy court timelines, you can often um, have a faster uh, sort of process uh, laid out. And, and again, I, I enjoy that speed. I think it benefits clients um, and, and benefits everybody to get to a resolution as quickly and efficiently as possible. Okay, with the advent of the current coronavirus, uh, are the bankruptcy matters featuring more litigation, more contentiousness, less? Does it depend on the situation? What are you finding? Yeah, I look in, uh, Kathy, I, I, de I defer to you. You go first. Um, I, you know, it, I think this is a very interesting question, and, and I think we'll continue to see it play out. My experience so far, and we're still just six months into the coronavirus epidemic at this point, is that it's it's caused a lot of my lender clients to be much more patient than they otherwise would be. Um, and but I, I don't know that that can that patience can last forever. Um, and so I think over time there'll be a, a shift back. But um, I have seen lenders that I've represented for years, for instance, who were not particularly inclined to give. Uh, debtors third and fourth chances, I've seen them do it. And, um, you know, so I think it has had somewhat of an impact. I don't think we've seen yet the, the tip of the iceberg of, of the financial distress coming from the, the virus yet. I think a year from now, this conversation will probably be a lot different. 
I, I agree. I think it's it's we're sort of in the too soon to tell stage. I would say that my initial instinct um, from what I've seen is there's been a little more patience, a little more um, desire to work things out or uh, buy a little more time before going full bore um, on the litigation front. Uh, just understanding the expense and cost associated with that. But um, things could be very different in six months or a year. How are the bankruptcy judges handling the need for expedition, given that uh, people are unlikely to be willing or able to pack in person into courtrooms? Bankruptcy courts that I appear in around the country have always been very court call friendly and had a system, a telephonic system in place, um, allowing parties to appear um, not in person. Um, some of that has now shifted to video hearings, um, but I think the bankruptcy court, in, in my practice at least, was better suited to go remote than either the district courts that I appear in front of or the state courts that I appear in front of. So they, I don't think, missed much of a beat, at least uh, in the states in which I practice. I agree. I think the bankruptcy courts were well positioned to um, and already had the infrastructure to shift to all remote um, hearings, uh, whether it be telephonically or uh, by video. And I think bankruptcy courts and, and judges have done an excellent job of making sure that they are accessible and available uh, as they were before, even if everyone is not there in person. Uh, so I, I think they were well positioned um, to do that. They, bankruptcy courts I practice in are used to having practitioners from around the country, um, used to making accommodations for telephonic and other, uh, you know, appearances, remote appearances, and um, have relatively seamlessly uh, continued that through the current um, pandemic. I think that wraps up the time we have. Thank you, Joseph. Thank you, Kathy. This has been a very informative uh, discussion. And thanks to all who are listening to for uh, listening to this uh, podcast on unusual litigations. Bye bye. Thank you for listening to the ABA Business Law Sections podcast series to the extent that the section offers a robust collection of content. To explore more about this topic or to learn about joining the section, visit ambar.org slash bizlaw. That's B-I-Z-L-A-W.